Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 77. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Healing Catalyst podcast. I'm so happy to be back with you again this week to continue our January intention of refresh and renew and part two of my conversation with Abby Stone, the VP of content and executive editor of Well and Good to discuss all the trends and wellness that are coming this year. In case you missed it, last week was part one of my conversation where we discussed the upcoming trends in beauty and self-care. I've gotten so many messages from all of you saying how much you enjoyed the episode and the insights and perspectives that we shared. You definitely want to go back and listen to that. If you already haven't, it's linked in the show notes for you. Today, the conversation continues with Abby Stone, who, as I mentioned, is the VP of content and executive editor of Well and Good to discuss all the trends that are coming in wellness this year. As VP of content, Abby oversees Well and Good's editorial team, using her decade of media experience to bring great stories to life. Her North Star is really to create wellness content that you can trust. It's backed by evidence, rooted in service, and committed to advancing an inclusive and accessible view of well-being. Prior to joining Well and Good in 2017, Abby was an editor at publications including Mental Floss and People. Since their launch in 2010, Well and Good has been a hub for trend spotting and reporting in the health and wellness space. They're known for their journalistic approach to content and their commitment to creating inclusive content that makes health and wellness accessible to everyone and aims to really amplify different perspectives, experiences, and stories. This week in part two of our conversation, we discuss trends in food, fitness, and healthcare. Some of the trends that we discussed today are the new snackable supplements that are on the market, the rise of the lupini bean, which is good for people and the planet, the renewed interest in group fitness, innovative approaches for mobility training, the rise of more holistic healthcare during birth, and the use of virtual reality to transform healthcare. I have to tell you this last one was so, so interesting. You'll also get some great insights from Abby as she shares many of the behind the scenes conversations that she had with her team as they sort of figured out what to add to this trend report as they researched and reported the trends that made it into the Well and Good's highly anticipated annual trends report for 2023. I think you'll really enjoy this very lively conversation between me and Abby, where we share our different perspectives on the trends and what's happening globally and culturally in health and wellness. I'm so happy to share part two of my conversation with Abby Stone to help you refresh and renew with a look at what's in store for food, fitness and healthcare in 2023. We are continuing our conversation, Abby. I know 
a lot of the listeners probably tuned in last week when we talked about the wellness trends for 2023 that Well and Good has looked at, specifically in the beauty and the self-care spaces. And so now we're going to shift our conversation to the trends you've identified in food, fitness, and health. But you know, one thing I want to really quickly talk about, because we'd actually didn't talk about this at the beginning of the last episode. So for those listeners who are listening to both episodes, I think it's important is that, you know, tell us a little bit about how Well and Good comes up with these trends, because I do think that that is really important. You kind of alluded to it in our last conversation, but we didn't jump into it. I think it's really important for people to know how researched all of these trends are. So can you just speak to that really quickly? And then we'll jump into the trends. Yeah, so much research is a real labor of love and also blood, sweat and tears um, for the editorial team at Well and Good. So we start work on our wellness trends report every year, kind of at the end of the summer, the writers and reporters and editors on my team start collating their inboxes, gathering intel from the sources they're speaking to and kind of seeing what patterns they've seen emerged um, in the in the past year and what that could mean in the coming year in regards to kind of new releases, new offerings, um, and also the ways that the wellness conversation is changing, um, kind of bigger picture. So we start with a pitch meeting, we start hashing out, you know, what are these different ideas? How could they come together? Um, and then everyone really dives into researching and reporting. So we speak to hundreds, literally, of um, brand founders, brand representatives, leaders in the wellness space, medical experts um, to, to learn everything that they're seeing and to make sure that all of the trends that we are calling in this final list are not just our opinion and they're not really even a hypothesis, but they really are rooted in the conversations and the research that we've done. Yeah. And I think that that's so important that this isn't like some opinion piece that you guys do, that this is really, really well researched and it's really driven by data and what you're seeing. So I really appreciate that because I think that it's, again, in a space like health and wellness that can become so confusing for so many people because there's so many, it's so noisy. There's so many voices, there's so much information that you know, you can get swayed really easily, right? Um, and so I think that having sources like this that are unbiased, that are based on the data and the research are really important sources of information. So thank you for talking about that. I just think that's an important frame for um, the listeners to have as we talk about these trends. Okay, so let's jump into food first. We're gonna do food, fitness, and health. And so there are two here that we wanted to talk about. The first is that snackable supplements are going beyond the gummy. Let's talk about this one. This is really interesting. It is. And this is one that I actually, um, my senior food editor had to convince me of a little bit. Okay. I was a skeptic here. Um, I'm a skeptic about supplements in general. So we'll just come out and say that I think that the research again and again, and the experts we, we talk to really speak to the fact that whole foods are, you know, the best way really to get the nutrients you need. But the supplement industry is is ballooning. And the fact of the matter is too that a lot of people for various reasons, whether it's the the eating plan that they adhere to or allergies or whatnot, do need to do some supplementation. So so it's a thing and I can't ignore it. <laughs> right. And the other thing is that also, you know, our sources of food, right? That the nutrient density, I mean there's a whole Again, we could spend an hour or two talking just about that. And so, you know, it's very problematic and difficult to get 
the nutrients that you need out of whole foods. You know, so I think that that's important too. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I love it. Please <laughs> jump in. Um, so yeah, so what we're seeing for this trend for 2023 is there's kind of this new class, this new type of supplement that's emerging um, that does make more use of these whole foods and whole ingredients. Um, and they, they, I, I highly recommend everyone check out our, our write-up of this online because actually seeing what these products look like was kind of the solidifier for me. They look like more like those like energy balls you might make in your kitchen. Um, those little like truffles. Um, there are these like small bars or, or cubes um, that you eat for your supplementation instead of swallowing a pill or taking a gummy. Um, and and why they're happening is for a few reasons. So one is they do use these whole ingredients, which are more bioavailable in the body, which means they're more readily absorbed in your bloodstream than a capsule form. Um, so there do seem to be some actual health benefits to this type of supplementation. And then the other is that um, for a lot of people, particularly um, pregnant people, there's one brand that we identified in this trend called Tend um, that makes a, uh, a prenatal that comes in this snackable form. Um, they were seeing really that a lot of people while pregnant were having a really hard time with pills. Nausea is a real issue. They have what's known as pill fatigue, um, where they really just can't stomach the, the prenatal supplements they need to take. Um, so they turn to these edible versions instead. So I think it's a really interesting space to watch. Um, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, this reminds me, um, actually, even before you, you talked about the, the prenatal is that, you know, in Ayurveda in South Asian culture, we have a tradition for postnatal. So mm -hmm. I remember, you know, after the birth of each of my children, they're in their twenties now, this was long ago, you know, my mother actually made these small energy bites that were like in the form of you know, the South Asian listeners will know what I'm talking about. It's like a laddu, which is an Indian sweet, and it's like a small ball. And she would actually make them packed with ghee and sugar and nuts and some different spices in there, all that have a lot of healing benefits. And the idea was, is that they were packed with nutrients that I needed while I was breastfeeding and also to recover from childbirth, right? You know, it's a really interesting concept that, again, we've been doing for many, many yeah. thousands of years in, in our these different cultures. You know, the idea that, you know, new mothers are given rest, you know, and I actually had to eat one every day for 40 days, the number 40, for whatever reason, is like a specific amount of time in which you know, it said that mothers, you know, new mothers would have time to restore their energy and their vitality and heal from the, from childbirth. And so again, they were, they were cared for by the other women, in their family, food was prepared for them. And also these like nutritional blood dues. And there's actually some other specific foods that have been traditionally made for that. But Again, that's just one example, right? And and the idea here is that these, you know, supplements are not like snacks or in the sense of like they're not supposed to fill you up. It's in addition, it's a supplement in a food a whole food form basically is what what you guys are talking about here, which is what I was getting. It wasn't like I was supposed to eat 10 of those, you know, a day. That wasn't the point. It was that it was a supplement. 
to help me. Yeah, exactly. And that's how we kind of see this new class as being different from like a protein bar. It's not something that you're hungry, so you need something to fill you up and you'll get an extra added boost. Instead, it's replacing those supplements that you might be taking. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the question that comes up for me right away is like, how are they keeping these fresh? Because these are, you know, whole foods and are they coming refrigerated? Yeah. A lot of them are refrigerated. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, I don't know a ton of detail about the shelf life of, of all of them, but I do know that many of these brands are meant to be kept in the refrigerator. Okay. Okay. So that's an interesting question, you know, of, and it'll be interesting to see how they distribute them because to do it on a mass scale, like how are they going to do that? Um, I mean, I guess it's no different than food in some ways, but let's, let's see what happens. So (laughs) it's a really interesting one. Okay. So the second food trend is about the lupini bean. So tell me about this bean, because I actually had to look this bean up because it is not native to South Asia. And so I don't know it that well. So let's talk about the lupini bean, which you guys have the title. I love this title. Get to know lupini, the new cool bean in town. So cute. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah. So beans, beans are great, right? Like I think a lot of people are are hip to the fact that beans are incredibly nutrient dense. They're a great source of protein. Um, And what we've seen over the past few years is um, beans and legume products are kind of cropping up um, as, you know, pasta alternatives, things of that nature. Um, and lupini is the new one. It's the new chickpea, I guess we'll say <laughs> where, where we're seeing it used in, in these brands kind of formulation. So, um, lupini has its origins, I believe in the middle East, um, and in the Mediterranean region, um, where it's been, its use is kind of chronicled back to ancient Egypt. But once again, the West has been slower to, to get hip to what's going on there. Um, and what's so cool about lupini in particular compared to some of these other pulses or, or legumes that are just as, you know, protein rich, fiber rich and good for you nutritionally um, is it's an incredibly sustainable crop. Um, it's known as a regenerative crop. Um, and because of the way it grows, I don't know that we need to get super sciencey here, but I'm happy to if you want. Yeah, it, it, no, it increases the the soil health while it grows and reduces nitrogen in the air, which is which is great for the planet. So, so yeah, super interesting. Um, more brands in the states are looking at harvesting lupini in the United States as well, so that we can reduce the footprint that comes with importing it from overseas. But yeah, it's super delicious. You'll be finding these kind of like snackable, um, almost like popcorn bites made out of lupini at the grocery store. Um, there's a brand called Loopy that's making pasta alternatives um, out of lupini. Um, there's a brand that makes essentially like a tater tot out of lupini. So yeah, just like a really fun kind of new category, I think. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, of course, cooking it, and just eating the whole lupini beans is probably the best way to eat these, <laughs> sure. not in processed food. But I get I get what you're saying. And, you know, again, this goes back to the data. We know that, you know, some of the longest living people on earth have a plant forward diet and pulses and legumes are a huge part of their diet because of the protein, the fiber, a lot of the other um, nutrients that are in it, you know. In Ayurveda, mung bean is probably the most well-known and well-used 
legume or pulse that we bean that we use. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of mung. You know, there's two different types. There's a split mung that is more yellow that most people probably would know because it's in kitchery, which is a very classic one pot meal in Ayurveda for digestive reset, for digestive rest because it's easy to digest. And then you can also get mung with the skins attached, which is a little more green, and that can be sprouted actually. Mm. So, you know, here, what's interesting about mung beans is that they're protein rich, but they also have fiber, folate, a lot of complex carbs, and they're tridoshic, which means that they're good for all mind-body constitutions, vata, pitta, and kapha. And so that's why they're used in in kitchery for panchakarma, for digestive rest, because they're easy to digest for everybody. So it's just interesting that, you know, Lupini, I'll have to try it. It's from another, <laughs> you know, another area. So I don't know it as well. But again, I think the point is, is that a lot of these beans and lentils and pulses can be such an important part of our diet uh, because of how much protein and fiber and nutrients they have. They're also very cheap you know, in the sense of really, really affordable for so many people to have. Um, because again, you know, this is happening in every realm of life, but even in food, I mean, food costs have gone up like crazy. And I think that having these types of alternatives and these, you know, ways of eating and cooking are so important and also being able to get the nutrition that you need, right? And the protein. So I think for all those reasons, this is a really interesting trend. Yeah, absolutely. And they're shelf stable too. So to get back to that accessibility, affordability um, matter, these pantry staples, I think are, are really important for people. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, a, you know, that benefit of affordability, accessibility, and then it's good for the planet. It's good for your health. There's all these reasons, right? To use <laughs> these types of um, beans and pulses. So, okay. So let's move into fitness, right? Um, so the first trend that you guys have, which I'm not surprised about, but I'm, I'm interested to see why you guys decided to talk about this as a trend, which is IRL fitness is back, baby. And I had to actually double check what IRL meant. <laughs> My kids were laughing at me. In real life, fitness is back. So let's talk about this one. Yeah. So the, I, I kept asking my fitness team, like, can we call it? Do we feel definitive? Um, and what this came down to is the fact that during the pandemic, again, we all went into lockdown, gyms and fitness studios closed their doors. Um, and many of them permanently, there's so many kind of mom and pop shops in the fitness space that, you know, haven't reopened or are now kind of finding new space. But yeah, so the, the conversation regarding fitness for the past few years has been about hybrid fitness, working out at home, building up your home gyms. Um, and we were wondering, you know, that it's so convenient to work out in your home. Are people going to want to go back to the gym once it's safe to do so? That was a big question. I think a lot of us were like, oh, this is never going to, people are not going to go back to classes ever. Yeah. And what we're seeing is they are. So it's, I don't, we don't think that people are abandoning their home setups. You know, if you invested in an exercise bike or some equipment in your home. I don't think you're going to be quick to abandon that. I know that I'm not. Um, but but there's a few things that kind of have come up that you can't recreate at home in the exact same experience. And those are the real reasons why people are going back to this, this in-person experience. So the first is equipment. So just kind of the brass tacks of it. Um, you know, 
something like strength training or weightlifting are, is not super accessible to buy those huge heavy weights in your own home. Um, and an experience like a boot camp class, for instance, you really kind of need the instructor present, you need the space to do it. Um, so these are the modalities where we're really seeing the return. Um, and in big box gyms as well. So kind of these, the crunches, the planet fitness, the kind of like lower price point gyms are, are seeing a lot of people return, which I think speaks to the fact that like, it's a privilege to have the space to work out in your home. I know I live in a very small New York city apartment and I have to move furniture whenever I want to work out. Um, so it's just not convenient for a lot of people. And then the other driving force behind this that almost every expert we spoke to identified is the, the sense of community that comes with working out with a group of people um, is something that people love and it, it helps with motivation. You know, there's research that shows that people work out better when you have kind of an accountability buddy. Um, so people are really craving that connection that came from having a community um, built around their exercise routine. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, it's it's probably also coupled with this idea of, you know, during the pandemic being isolated from people, but also having a renewed sort of understanding of the importance of your health, right? So, you know, fitness in general, whatever it is, whether it's yoga or walking, people really started to understand that. So I think that's one, but I do think that this connection piece is actually the key driving factor from my perspective, because I think that people want connection and they're, they're trying to find connection in any ways that they can. And probably maybe for some people or a lot of people in a different way, right? That it's not just about going out to restaurants and, you know, events, but actually doing something like this that is good for you also in a health way. And so it's like double duty almost, right? Because, you know, we know, again, even from the blue zone studies of the longest living people on earth, you know, who have lived to a hundred years or more, the constant, the highest concentrations of those people you know, this sense of connection is one of the key factors in living a long, healthy life of longevity, right? The importance of being with others, right? The connection that you need for your health, because we know that loneliness is associated with all kinds of negative health effects, right? You know, everything from, you know, loneliness increases the likelihood of your mortality by 26%, or that, you know, loneliness is actually compared to the negative effects of obesity and even smoking, right? That's mm -hmm. how impactful a sense of loneliness can be on your health. It's, you know, associated with increased risk of heart disease, of stroke. It puts you at bigger risk for cognitive decline and dementia as you get older, depression, anxiety, right? So even suicide, these are all things that we know are connected to loneliness. So I think there are so many reasons that this is so important. And I know a lot of people are still really stressed out about being in spaces with a lot of people because of COVID risk or, you know, exposure. And so I think, again, this is going to be an interesting space to look at and see, you know, the balance of that, of, of taking you know, calculated risks of exposure mm -hmm. versus having connection with others. Right. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I think is, you know, a bigger conversation that we've all been having, even as, you know, we were in the pandemic and even in this time now of this post pandemic, 
in pandemic, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> of you know the negative effects of loneliness, isolation, disconnection, the mental health effects um, of that versus the risk of exposure and like trying to balance that. I don't know that we're going to know for a few years still. I mean, I think anecdotally we know what it is. It's been pretty negative, but it's an interesting thing. So I'll be interested to see what happens with this. Yeah. And we've lost so many touch points. I think, you know, people used to talk about, um, you know, you have the home space and you have the workspace, but I know I'm still working remotely. So you've kind of lost those touch points with people. Um, so yeah, we've long kind of thought of the fitness space as being the third space after home and work. Um, and I think for a lot of people now it's the second space instead. Um, but totally hear what you're saying. It's not, uh, there's still a lot of trepidation, rightly so about, um, you know, being in an interior space with people and in fitness in particular, you know, one of the reasons why gyms were kind of the first to shut down is you're heavy breathing, you're sweating. Um, so definitely a certain amount of kind of calculating for yourself. What's, what's the pro and con here to this experience? Yeah. And I think your point about the work home spaces and then, you know, a fitness space or a gym being that third space, but now it's kind of become the second space. I think this is interesting also because we're seeing these sort of wellness social clubs, the mm -hmm. the popularity of those rise. Um, you know, I'm a consultant here, the director of Ayurveda at um, a concept here in Chicago called Beyond, which is exactly that. It's a it's a wellness space, the idea of a social club, but also it's very it's completely focused on wellness integrative healing to actually bridge that gap, right? So this is interesting and, and to see, and even, you know, places like uh, some of these big gyms, like Lifetime Fitness, I know in Chicago actually just opened up a, a space that is actually this idea of, you know, a work from home space where they have a cafe, they have, you know, um, you know little rooms that you can rent or, or desk setups or whatever, so that you can have this full experience of, using the gym, using the services that they have, the facilities, but then also eating there um, and working there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. You know, this is an interesting space to look at. We have one more fitness uh, trend to talk about, which is mobility training moves out of the physical therapist's office. Let's talk about this one. Yeah. So we're, we've been hearing the word mobility, you know, it, it used with increased frequency um, over the past few months, and that is really manifesting in kind of new offerings in the coming year. Um, so mobility refers to the range of motion within your joints. Um, and what we're seeing is that there's a greater awareness of how important mobility is in a well-rounded fitness routine. Um, and my senior fitness editor that wrote this trend, you know, called it kind of the fourth pillar of fitness. So if you think of strength, you think of cardio fitness, flexibility have kind of been the big three for so long. And now there's a greater awareness of mobility training as well. Um, and where this is coming from, there's actually a great segue you just had is, um, we're so stiff, right? Like we're working from a home, we're in these likely non-ergonomic setups, um, working from our couch or what have you. And, and we're more aware now of those like 
aches and pains. And whenever we talk about this, I start like rolling my shoulders because yeah. it just brings awareness to it. Right. Um, so we're looking for that, that sense of ease, that sense of relief that comes from expanding your range of motion. Um, what is interesting is similar to a lot of these things we've been talking about, um, as this word game, this word mobility gains more popularity, it's also being misused. It's being thrown around a lot. Um, there are a number of like stretching classes, for instance, that call themselves mobility classes. Um, but the real difference between stretching and mobility work is that mobility is a more dynamic movement. It's not passive. Um, so, so it's just something for people to kind of keep in mind as they explore this for themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And, you know, it's something that I talk about a lot on this podcast, which is, you know, what yoga really is. And mm. from a therapeutic standpoint, it's the dynamic movement, but that's coordinated with your breath. So it's not passive. You actually have to think about it and coordinate your inhale and exhale with the movements, which is, I think, a little bit of what mobility also is. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, again, you know, this idea of mobility, I think it's great that we're talking about it, but I think as more people are concerned about their health coming out of the pandemic, realizing that longevity matters and the idea of living more years with more health and vitality, not just living more years, right? Just like this idea of anti-aging, which I, I don't even understand that term, but <laughs> you know, we, that was sort of the, the thing uh, for the past you know, 20, 30 years. And you know, many of my colleagues in integrative medicine are you know, going into this idea of longevity and talking about that. There's a lot of books coming out. I'm actually writing a book right now on longevity from an Ayurvedic perspective. And so I've really been deep in this topic. So I was really interested in this, but you know, the idea of mobility and functional movement that allows you to do the things you need to do in life to be independent, right? To not have the falls that we associated with aging, because, you know, we know that there is a direct correlation between having a fall and then the decline of your health, right? Mm -hmm. we, we know that that is a clear uh, connection. And so, you know, functional movement, again, in the blue zones, you know, that is another factor for longevity, for living to hundred years old is actually walking everywhere of doing your own yard work or garden work or carrying your groceries or, you know, those kinds of movements that are dynamic, that require strength and flexibility. And so I think it's just, again, going back to sort of the way humans were designed we're not designed to sit in front of a computer or look at our phones, you know, in these weird positions that are not natural. And so I think that's really what this is about, which I, I think is great. I think it's great. Okay, let's move on to health. We're in the last area of trends. And so the first trend that we're going to talk about is that holistic health services are helping bring back the joy of birth. So let's, let's talk about this one. Yeah, so this was one that I felt like um, we had to include in this yeah. list. So, um, the United States is experiencing a maternal mortality crisis. Um, and it's only getting worse, you know, the past few years, I believe from 2020 to 2021, um, the amount of pregnancy associated, um, deaths, which there's kind of a flexible definition there, but can be as long as a year after giving birth from a pregnancy related complication. Um, rose 18% uh, just a couple years ago. 
And then it's even more acute for Black women and for Indigenous women by two to three times the, the numbers we see in white women. So a real crisis happening in this country that we can't ignore. We need to find solutions for. One area where we're seeing a lot of success and a lot of solutions towards making progress in this space is, and it comes to the theme of this conversation, taking a holistic, whole person approach to the birthing experience. And that starts during pregnancy and then continues after giving birth through the postpartum experience. Um, postpartum depression rates are also on the rise um, for people who give birth in the United States. So a real mental, physical crisis we're experiencing. And how this is materializing um, is a number of different ways, but one being in the, the increased use of doulas during the birthing experience. Um, and doulas, I think a lot of people confuse with midwives, but it's, it's, a, different, um, it's a different practice. And they often are, you know, working with the person who's giving birth to create a, a much more culturally competent approach to the experience. And doulas can often advocate for the person giving birth in a medical environment as well, um, which is kind of a, a common theme that we've seen, which is that giving birth, especially if it's the first time, is very scary for a lot of people never done it before. You don't know what to expect. And, and in the moment, it can be really difficult to advocate for yourself. So doulas are kind of stepping in to help fill that gap. And there, there's research that shows that there's an increased success rate of, of a healthy birth and after period when working with a doula. So there are organizations like Mama Glow, founded by Latham Thomas in New York City, um, that's not only increasing the services they offer, and the, but also the trainings they offer so that more people can learn to become doulas, which I think is so important. Um, and she's also working to integrate it more into the, the traditional medical school system in the United States as well. She just started teaching a class at Brown University um, that focuses on, on doula care. So, so that's a really interesting space that we're seeing. Um, and then on kind of the, the more medical side of it, there are these new, um, new clinics that are opening up new birthing clinics that, um, you know, pair OBGYN services with holistic health services as well. So ULA is one in New York city that's new. Um, Maven clinic is, is another, um, kind of women's health and family health centered telemedicine clinic, um, that's looking to in the coming year become more available to Medicaid recipients. Um, because a question that comes up with a lot of this is the affordability factor as well. Um, not everyone can afford a doula and it's not something that insurance often covers. So making these services more available to Medicaid in particular is, is a movement that we're seeing. And there are a number of advocacy organizations that are working to make doula services covered by Medicaid and insurance in a number of states. I think eight states currently have it legal and there's a number of um, others that are kind of in process. Yeah, this is a great one. I mean, this is, you know, this goes back to the earlier conversation we were having about the postpartum sort of help that you get from women in your family that I experienced with the, the, the supplements, right? This type of support for women pre or during pregnancy, during birth, you know, after birth has always been there. It's traditionally been by other women in the community, in your family. And 
again, modern life has separated that sort of communal living, that community connection. And so I think that this is an amazing you know, thing that's happening. And not to say that we didn't have doulas, um, you know, there were women who were very specifically very knowledgeable in these areas of women's health that were sort of part of that community that would take care of you. So I do think that this is so important. Again, it comes back to, you know, some of the themes that we've been talking about, which is this connection to other people, that our health is not just us alone, but health is so connected to the world that we live in, the people that are in our lives, right? It's connected to every aspect of our being, mind, body, spirit. And so I feel like, you know, a lot of these trends are sort of, you know, going back to that understanding of that connection. So I, I love this one. I was really interested in um, the class that Latham is teaching at Brown. And just to clarify, that's not at the medical school. It's for undergrads who are going to be applying to medical school because that would be pretty big if it went into medical education. I, that's going to take a while, I know. But you know, the fact that students who are interested in healthcare and that want to apply to medical school, if they can come in with this perspective, I think it does start to change what happens when we have physicians that are trained, right? Again, it's even like with integrative medicine, you know, I was teaching over at Northwestern in their medical school at the Feinberg Medical School, a lot of medical students who were going to be going into whatever specialty but they were taking an integrative medicine rotation so that they could learn, again, about these systems of health so that they had this perspective when they're dealing with patients of all different cultures. So I think this is just, you know, again, that cultural competency, mm-hmm. the accessibility, the um, understanding of how connected health is to everything. I think it's, it's a great thing. Okay, so let's talk about the last trend that we were going to talk about, which is, again, in health. It's no illusion. Virtual reality is transforming healthcare. This is really interesting. This is. This is super interesting. Um, so the metaverse is coming yes, for healthcare, as it seems <laughs> to be coming for every facet of yeah. our lives. Um, but there's a lot of promise here, and, and the scientific community is really excited about it. So um, medical researchers for, for decades now have been looking into the benefits of um, virtual reality in in the treatment of certain healthcare conditions, and when we talk about virtual reality, we are talking about the headset, the Oculus headset, that kind of immersive experience. Just so to kind of paint a picture for folks, yeah. but but there's been a real groundswell of support led by increased le- research in this space um, over the past year. Over the summer, the FDA hosted a two-day summit to kind of identify the main areas of opportunity for virtual reality in healthcare, and also some of the risks and barriers that could come with these types of treatments as well. And the areas that they identified as having the most opportunity are for mental health conditions, neurological disorders, pediatric conditions, particularly um, pediatric ocular conditions, chronic pain management, and then for surgery. So they're using um, virtual reality as a training tool for um, in the medical. Yeah, which I think is is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's becoming it's becoming more widely researched. The FDA has given a stamp of approval, I think, to a few different types of 
treatments that can now be prescribed that use virtual reality. And, you know, my big question is like, what does this mean? What does this look like? I kept asking my reporter, like, what are we talking about here? Um, And what it comes down to a lot, which is, you know, I wasn't surprised that you picked this one to to speak about, but um, is because a lot of what happens, particularly in regards to the mental health and pain management category, is that you're creating a mindfulness meditation experience in a really immersive environment. Um, and meditation is, is one of those things, again, that has been followed for, for forever. Um, and now there's more scientific research to back up the benefits of it. There was a study that came out just in early December, I believe, that said that for the treatment of uh, treatment-resistant depression, meditation can be just as effective as certain SSRIs. So really interesting space um, that, you know, scientists have identified as having so much potential, but there is this barrier right now. These devices start at like $300 and to get kind of the top of the line, you're talking about like thousands of dollars of an investment, um, which everyone can't afford. Right. Um, and you also have to have access to a computer to do that. Sure. Right? So that's the other piece. You know, it's really, this is an interesting one because I, I know I've heard so much about, you know, virtual reality sort of being used for training of physicians, health professionals. And I totally get that. And so, you know, using it for a training sort of visual sort of experience of like simulating the human body, totally can understand that. But then, you know, I really had to think about like, well, how is this using you know, being used as a treatment option. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, these five areas that the FDA um, approved, they all have to do with the mind-body connection. So here we yeah. are back at this, this idea of everything's connected, right? And that, you know, this is almost like um, immersive visualization, right? Because we know in guided meditation, um, in what we call uh, holding a an image or bhavana, it, it, it's a tool of yoga, which has been used for centuries, right? That this is um, something that is very helpful to change your mindset, right? To to alter your physiology, and so I think that that's what this is getting at. I will be really interested to see what this looks like. I, I, you know, I'm not the type of person to do virtual reality. It makes me a little nauseous actually, because <laughs> I can't, you know, I'm not the person who would go on all those virtual reality rides and stuff. So I'm just, it'll be interesting to see what this, this looks like. But I think, um, again, you know, we're taking technology to the next level and finding how to take these ancient practices and sort of um, combine them with the technology that we have and, and the medical research. So I think that this is so, so interesting. And so it, it just feels like there's been a common theme in all of these wellness trends, which I find so exciting as someone in integrative medicine and integrative healing, that we are seeing how Western culture, Western medicine is finally starting to really see the benefits of these ancient healing traditions and taking them to the next level. I just hope that it doesn't become where it's inaccessible to most people and those appropriation sorts of issues that, that are come up in wellness, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. So I completely agree. And, and it's, it's really encouraging for me to see that, um, in each of these spaces that we looked at, there are, 
groups and individuals and organizations that have accessibility top of mind, um, which I think is so important. And that's what makes me so excited about this as well. So to just use VR as an example, um, since it was what we were just chatting about, you know, the Veterans Administration is really um, rolling this out widely. They have hundreds of clinics across the country for veterans to use this technology. You know, they have them in the clinic so you don't have to buy your own to treat PTSD and depression. And there's a cool um, kind of direct-to-consumer company called Flowly that offers a monthly subscription service to a VR device. So for like $10 a month, they'll send you one and you can use it. So inroads definitely being made from both the systemic kind of healthcare level and the the private level, which I think is a we could have a whole other conversation about yes, this, but that, that that's kind of a dichotomy that we see in wellness a lot is kind of approaching the big picture from the public sector and then also from the private sector at the same time. Yeah. So it, it'll be great when those become more and more aligned and hopefully that's, that's the direction we're going in. So I, I know that we have been talking now for like an hour and a half, the two of us for these two episodes. It it has just been so much fun. But I just have one last question as we sort of, you know, wrap up our time, a question that I ask every guest on the podcast that when I mentioned the phrase, the healing catalyst, what comes up for you? I think self-discovery is something that comes up to me. I think that's been a common thread we're talking about today, learning what feels right for you and, and not taking a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, And also as part of that, I think as you learn more about yourself, you learn to trust yourself as well and you feel empowered to advocate for the things that you need. And I think that that's something that's so necessary when it talks about, when it comes to talking about healing. Yeah. Abby, thank you so much for doing this with me. I so appreciate you. um, And I have loved this conversation. I hope that we can do more of these together. So thank you. Please. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember... With the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.